Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. With so many new innovations in technology, we have ventured beyond much of the original design for the existing regulatory frameworks. Ajit Pai spent over a decade at the Federal Communications Commission and recognized that changes in the regulatory structure were important to match the advancements in telecommunications and technology ecosystems. When he was chairman of the FCC, Ajit developed a well-deserved reputation as a creative and effective thought leader on many core issues, from the needed changes and policies to expand broadband access across America to enabling investment in the next-generation communications networks like 5G. I recently had the opportunity to discuss his leadership at length when I interviewed him live at the AEI Enterprise Club retreat. Along with his role at AEI as a non-resident fellow, he is a partner in the global investment firm Searchlight Capital Partners. Today's show is a longer episode, but I hope you'll enjoy the conversation and the audience questions. It is well worth a listen. Please enjoy this live taping of my conversation with Ajit Pai. So Ajit, let's just get started. Welcome back to Explain to Shane's, uh, the podcast. Thank you for being part of this live podcast. And we have an audience tonight, which is new. But just to give us an idea of, um, you you joined AEI, what, two years ago? A year and a half. Okay, a year and a half ago. How has that been for you so far? It's been terrific, uh, but before I say why, I want to thank you, uh, Shane, for hosting this conversation, and thanks to AEI for bringing all of us uh, together on a Thursday night. It's uh, Rum and regulation is always a dangerous combination, <laughs> but nonetheless, I'm really optimistic about how things are going to go. Uh, but, you know, when I left the FCC in January of 2021, I was thinking about what I wanted to do when I grew up, and uh, there are a few different options that presented themselves before me, but uh, I always kept coming back to AEI. The very last speech I gave, actually, as the chairman of the FCC was at AEI, where I talked about some of the hard choices I faced and, uh, you know, people I had to upset in order to do the right thing. And when I thought about it, I realized that that is exactly what AEI is all about, is tackling the very difficult decisions that have to be made, coming to the table with a thoughtful, sometimes heterodox view of things, and really trying to figure out what the right answer is, not by putting your finger on the wind, but by putting your finger on the facts. And uh, so in terms of uh, the policy work I wanted to continue to do, it's a pretty natural uh, segue from uh, the government into AEI. And Obviously, you know, I know it's a tried and true tradition to pander to your podcast host, but this is true in this case, that you and all of your other colleagues in the AI Tech Policy Group are just spectacular. These are folks that I read when I was at the FCC for illumination of a particular topic, and uh, you know, just to be able to labor alongside them, in this, it's just a wonderful experience. So I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. So uh, for you guys who don't know, we have a, a tech team here, which is a little different than the way a lot of AI works. We have several scholars, and one of the things that we do, um, it was and sometimes it's in coordination of what we were just talking about. It used to be the, the chairman's dinner, which is part of the Federal Communications Commission. There's a bar association. And there's also something called TPRC. I don't even know what it stands for. It's off my head. Yeah, but it's, it's a big dork fest. But our people come in for that. And, um, and so we would have the Federal Communications Committee, your staff, come in and just talk to us baseline, which is really one of the great things you can do in Washington is, okay, you're working on something you know, within the guidelines of the rules of what we can talk about. Like, how is it going? And you, they were always so generous, and you were great about have, you know, allowing them to come. One of the things that has happened in this current administration that, um, and I, I'm, I apologize if we go into the weeds, I will tr- I'll do my best to try to keep this high level, but I think it's important that you all know about this, is you opened up and you made rules around, that you, you have a monthly meeting, right? Yeah, yeah. And so if you just kind of explain the process and the fact that you changed things and allowed information flow before the meeting, which to a normal human being sounds normal, but it didn't actually used to be that way. You would go to these meetings and it was like you'd take a, a blindfold off. Yeah. So t- tell us about the change that you made. Sure. Uh, and for those of you who are blissfully unaware of my career trajectory, I spent four years as a commissioner during the Obama administration before being elevated to chairman under President Trump. And one of the things that drove me crazy when I was a commissioner in the minority, I was one of the Republican commissioners, there were five total, is that by law we are required to have a meeting where we vote on various things, uh, proposals, orders, that are teed up by the chairman of the commission. But we would never release the actual text of those proposals and orders until after we had voted. So we'd essentially vote in secret on these documents that nobody could see other than the FCC's commissioners and staff, and then afterward announce to the world what we had done. And so it seemed to me kind of bizarre that in an age where a single congressman or senator can put legislation on the Internet immediately after introducing it, 
and people can debate about it and report on it, uh, that the SEC still lived in this sort of backwater. And so I proposed to the chairman at the time, my predecessor, look, I really think we should publish this as an advance so people can, you know, as my third grade math teacher would say, show your work, you know, to say what it is you're going to do and how you got there. And he's like, no, it's illegal and it's just a bad idea and it's going to impose all these burdens. And I kept being told no, including by members of Congress uh, on both sides of the aisle, actually. And my second week in office, I changed that. I said, from now on, at these monthly meetings, I will promise you, we, you, the American public, we are going to publish at least three weeks in advance exactly what we're going to be voting on. And I remember some members of the press who were otherwise predisposed not to like me anyway, go, oh my God, this is going to be the dis- a complete disaster. You know, only high-priced lobbyists and lawyers are going to get access to the FCC to really understand what's going on. And it's completely the opposite now. I would routinely, when I was in office, get emails from people in Wyoming or whatever who had an internet connection who said, wow, you know, I can actually read what it is you're about to do. And I might disagree with it, but at least I can understand it. And that kind of transparency seems like you're pretty one of 101 to the average citizen, but within the FCC is pretty radical. And other steps like that we try to introduce just to make the agency more open and transparent and uh, also just transform the, how the agency operated. You know, we created an office of economics and analytics. You know, for lawyers, there's an office of general counsel. Uh, for engineers, there was an office of engineering technology, but economists were always relegated to the backwater. I thought, this is ridiculous. Telecom's one-sixth of the world, national economy. We should have economists at the table to at least help us weigh costs and benefits. And just different reforms like that we pushed through, I'm really proud of, and they've persisted even into the current administration. That's, that's good to hear. I mean, it's, it's one of those astounding things when you hear about it. You're like, how did you, you mean, you, you have these secret meetings and then you tell us oh afterwards gosh, what you yeah, guys did. It's just... Yeah, it's, it, so what makes it interesting in, with this current re- Administration is that um, they've just inverted that at the Federal Trade Commission. Yeah. So where you know they had a similar thing and they've started doing open meetings, they now don't have information flow and everything's running directly out of the chairwoman's office. And um, it seems it was so heartening for the work that you did to be able to read them and understand what was going on, and you'd actually tune in to the you know the FCC monthly meeting. I'd put it on my calendar so I knew what was going on. And yeah. now I watch the FTC just to see how the reaction on the, chair, the other commissioners' faces when they don't know what's coming up. And it just seems like this is America. This is how we do government. It seems crazy. Yeah, no, I feel I feel bad for the other commissioners and also the staff. I mean, one of the things I hear now from FCC staff that I run into at you know, the grocery store or whatever is, you know, we we always we loved the fact that you introduced this kind of transparency reform because we knew that our work would be seen by the, by the broader populace and that it would get voted on. And so, I used to be a staffer before becoming a commissioner. One of my frustrations was the staff would work on all this stuff and it would never go anywhere; it would just sit on a shelf. And so I. If you know anything about me, you know I'm kind of a man of action. I don't want to waste time and effort. And so everything that we had our staff work on immediately, as soon as it was ready, got voted on. And they loved that. And so I think it, that's part of the reason why the morale at the FTC is relatively low now, if you look at the surveys. And uh, and they're not getting as much done either. So it's kind of a double whammy that I don't think serves the agency or the American public very well. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how our antitrust situation is there. But let's go back to some of the work that you did. What were some of the top you feel like your top accomplishments at your time at the FCC? I think one of the things that was closest to my heart, at least, was helping to close the digital divide, that gap between the Americans who don't have internet access and those who do. And yeah, I come from a small town in rural Kansas uh, called Parsons, three hours south of Kansas City, two hours from Wichita, two hours from Tulsa. Um, and it, you know, whenever I go back home, it becomes keenly aware to me that many people back home don't have the same access that we do in suburban Washington, D.C. And so I tried to change that, and we instituted a whole bunch of different reforms to help accomplish that, which I'm sure we might get into later. Uh, the second thing is really advancing the ball in terms of American leadership in wireless, and 5G in particular. When I came into office, uh, the U.S. had not held a major spectrum option in 5G at all. We didn't have much teed up in the pipeline, and uh, part of the reason was there were a lot of institutional forces within government and in the private sector that always stood in the way. And I told my team from day one, I was determined to spend every last ounce of my political capital making sure that the U.S. had a leading position in spectrum policy and wireless infrastructure and the rest. And we broke a lot of eggs, no doubt about it. And uh, you know, I knew we had gotten results when, in the summer of 2020, my mom, against my advice, who, she had set a Google News alert for my name. <laughs> Always dangerous when uh, you know, Asian immigrant moms who think their kids should have gone to medical school anyway then start seeing them doing these crazy things in government. Anyway, so she saw this article written in, I think it was in Politico, and the headline it was, Ajit Pai is angering a lot of powerful people when it comes to 5G. And it listed all of these agencies. The Secretary of Defense is angry at him. Secretary of Transportation is angry at him. FAA, NASA, NOAA. Even the Department of Education has come out. And so she read all these things like, 
are you doing something bad? Like, all these people can't be wrong, right? And I was like, no, they, actually they are. Because for a long time, the dominant mode in American government at the FCC when it came to spectrum was inertia, which is one of the most powerful forces in government. It's always easier for the chairman or chairwoman not to rock the boat, you know, not to push a certain spectrum ban because another agency or another company will get upset. And uh, I was asked about this in Congress, and I said to them, well, I had a skeptical member asking me, well, yeah, why do you have to pursue it in this band, you know, pursue 5G spectrum auctions in this band? I said, Senator, with all due respect, for any given band, you will find someone, a federal agency or a private company, that will tell you, I'm all in favor of American leadership in 5G, just not in this band. And if, we, if I took that seriously, we would never get anything done. So uh, now, as a result, you know, 5G is deployed widely across the United States, Phones are coming out that are 5G enabled, new services are coming out, new business models are emerging on the basis of 5G, and all of that happened because I got negative headlines about, you know, with my mom about you know, doing some of the work on 5G. So let's talk about the shuffling of the spectrum you know, process there, because you do, like, the interagency processes, this is an interesting thing that happens in Washington, is there's supposed to be, you know, a group of people that get together, and then they talk about their concerns, and then there's, they sometimes create a policy out of it, and one of the things that you might have read around Christmas was that the uh, the FAA and the pilots were upset because they thought that this new technology was going to make planes crash. We're all against that because I know a lot of you flew here, right? I mean, so that just seemed like a bad idea. But when you dug below that, it turned out that, I mean, I, I wrote a couple blogs on this. You lived through a lot of this. Uh, so walk us through why that wasn't the problem that it was, you know, in the print to be. Yeah, this is a classic case of how spectrum policy works in Washington. Uh, and to me, it's sort of amusing. The FAA, having solved all the other problems with airline travels, I'm sure you're aware, decided to focus on this particular issue late last year. Uh, you know, nothing about the overhead bag situation or you know, being crammed in. Like, no, 5G spectrum, that's what we're going to focus on. <laughs> Great work, FAA. So anyway, we had opened up back in 2017 and 2018 a conversation about all the possible spectrum that could be used for 5G. And one of the things we identified was what was called the C-band. And this is sort of the sweet spot in terms of spectrum. It car- because of the physical properties of it, it carries a lot of data, and it can also carry go a relatively longer distance. So I told the team, look, we really need to tee up this particular band Let's figure out all of the uh, equities in this band. Who's in the band right now? Who's adjacent to the band? Uh, about 200 megahertz away from that band, which is a pretty big distance, is uh, radio al- or altimeters. Um, the altimeters tell you how high you are when you're in a plane. And so we had the engineers look at it. We uh, invited the NTIA, which is a part of the Department of Commerce. We invited the FAA and others, the airline industry, to also tell us, look, if you think there's going to be interference with these altimeters, let us know. You know. Show us your work. Show us the evidence you've got. And we'll try to resolve it on a technical basis. This is back in 2018, 2019. They never did. And so we moved ahead in 2020. And I remember before we moved ahead with our final order in 2020, I asked the team, just put together a huge punch list of all the potential issues that could go wrong if we move ahead like this. And on page, it was a 15-page document on page 13. Yeah, you know, some people have been complaining about altimeters. Boeing has. But we've addressed Boeing's objection by giving them two times the amount of uh, buffer that they want. It's like, OK, fine, done. Never even occurred to me that this would be an issue. And so we move ahead with the auction. The auction is done. Largest spectrum auction in American history. Generated $81 billion for you, the American taxpayer, uh, which I'm sure Congress will use very wisely. And then uh, and after that, we move ahead. And you know, Mer- this is critical spectrum for American leadership in 5G. If you want to beat China and all these other countries in 5G, you've got to put the building blocks, including spectrum, in place. So I leave office. Like, all right, we're done. That was like, spike the football. We're, we're all good. Uh, but unfortunately, my successor had put out a few uh, suggestions that, okay, you know, maybe there might be an issue here, or I'm not going to really fight that hard if you object FAA. So the FAA said, well, why not? Because the alternative was they would have to retrofit a lot of these old... They didn't even know what kinds of altimeters were in the commercial aircraft, and they didn't know if there would be any interference to those altimeters. So they decided, well... If we raise a stink now, in November of 21, just before the spectrum is going live, we can scare the bejesus out of the American public and essentially force the FCC and the wireless industry to finance all the replacement of all the altimeters in the commercial Take fleet. the old school word for that is shakedown. I, you know, you, you, could, you could choose your noun, but uh, you know, all of them are going to be you know, pretty apt, I think, in, in most cases. And so... Uh, but it's just such a ridiculous, on the basis of engineering alone, I mean, look, the policy, you know, we can all debate whether or not we should retrofit all these altimeters, but on the basis of engineering, 
there's no chance that this is going to happen. I mean, for example, France and Japan and other countries around the world use this very spectrum for 5G. Last I heard, I mean, you don't see Air France flights or, you know, uh, Air Nippon flights flying, falling out of the sky. And so it stands to reason that, you know, the physics aren't going to change simply because we're within the national borders of the U.S. And so uh, just one example, though, I mean, we face this many, many times, you know, Legato, the L-band, GPS is going to fail. The Department of Transportation is upset because of 5.9 gigahertz. Oh, cars are going to crash. Uh, every single band, you would find somebody raising this parade of horribles. And so, yeah, it's unfortunate, but uh, we moved ahead anyway, and I'm glad we did. And it didn't seem to have a problem after all. They, they, yeah. They kind of said, yeah. And what do you know? The, the Department of Commerce, just la- earlier this week or late last week, I'm not sure which, put out a report saying, you know, on page 57 or whatever it was of the single-space document, yeah, we don't really think there's going to be interference here to these altimeters after all. So, like, all of that angst, you see CNN headlines proclaiming that 5G is going to kill us all in the air, it was just for clickbait, essentially. So, Welcome to my world. <laughs> Part of the reason why I have more gray hair now than when I did when I started. So you mentioned C-band being very important to us. Explain to us what C-band is, first of all, and then why is it so important for moving forward in technology? So uh, one of the things with 5G, which is different from 4G, is that it uses a wide variety of spectrum, the airwaves that we all rely on. And uh, for 5G in particular, uh, these phones are going to need to be a little bit closer to uh, the edges of the network, and they're going to have to have much greater capacity to receive and send data. And some of the spectrum bands we use now for 4G are relatively constrained. And so C-band was kind of this greenfield. It's 500 megahertz of spectrum altogether. This is 3.7 to 4.2 gigahertz for those of you keeping score. Traditionally, the C-band has been used for the satellite delivery of video programming. So if you watch ESPN or some other linear channel on your uh, cable provider, you're probably watching C- you were watching C-band delivered programming because they would essentially, you know, the ESPN hub in Connecticut would beam it up to a satellite. That satellite would find your cable cable's uh, uh, head-end device, and then just essentially deliver it to you that way. Uh, but because of the advances in technology, they can now send video much more efficiently, or they can just use optical fiber to send it instead of sending it up into space. So we said, okay, that's essentially free spectrum now. That spectrum, all that spectrum doesn't need to be used for satellite. Let's repurpose it for a higher-valued use, which is sort of the Ronald Coase theorem in action, right? If uh, Assuming transaction costs are low, then the property rights should be assigned to the highest-valued user, which is essentially what we tried to do. And so we set up a very innovative system where we said, okay, we're going to crowd those satellite providers who are providing video programming into the upper 200 megahertz of that, and then auction the remainder, essentially the 300 megahertz, to the wireless providers. And that's basically what we did. And that was critical because, again, there are many other countries around the world that are looking to seize the mantle of leadership from the U.S. and wireless, China in particular. China's got infrastructure providers like Huawei and ZTE. They have huge wireless companies like China Mobile. And they have a lot of innovators who were focused exclusively on 5G. And my worry was if the U.S. didn't put in place some of these building blocks like Spectrum, like wireless infrastructure, then over time capital and talent would flow to where people perceive there's a greater opportunity to innovate, and that would be China, for example. And so the C-band was really the centerpiece of our efforts. Um, The other piece as well, I mentioned the $81 billion. I didn't know when we went into it it would be that big. But my proposal was, well before anyone heard of COVID, I said, look, whatever the proceeds of this auction are, I urge Congress to devote that money, devote those proceeds to building up rural broadband, to making sure that we get fiber or other communications technologies to unserved parts of the country. So just imagine back in 2019 and 2020, if we had already made that decision, we wouldn't be sitting here now wondering, like, how on earth are kids going to do their homework at home? How are farmers going to use precision agriculture? How are people in areas without hospitals going to do telehealth? We already would have been there. And so that was part of my idea with the C-band was that this could really be a game changer for the American people in terms of wireless and in terms of broadband. So let's talk about COVID and what I think was the unsung hero was really Internet infrastructure and the fact so many people were get online and they were able to get on Zoom or WebEx or Microsoft Teams or whatever it is they needed to do and get work done. Yeah. And that and the system didn't seem to have any failure. I mean, it worked. Yeah. So what, why was why is it we did so well and other countries didn't do as well as we did? I'd like to think part of the reason is because we made the difficult decisions early on that incentivize companies to raise the capital, to build the networks, and to ultimately deliver the services that would stand strong during the COVID nineteen pandemic and. 
We got a lot of heat. I'm sure many of you have heard of net neutrality, the decision we made essentially removing some of the more onerous utility-style regulations from the Internet. We made a lot of other deregulatory decisions as well. And as a result, fiber investment in the United States set a record in 2018, a record that was broken in 2019, and then again in 2020. We saw millions more Americans connected to the Internet before COVID hit. And so as a result, when the pandemic did hit, we saw people able to do a lot more things in the United States than they could, generally speaking, in Europe. In Europe, for example, early on, uh, one of my counterparts in the European Union had to go hat in hand to Netflix and YouTube and companies like that and ask them, can you throttle your video content from HD down to SD? Because we are not confident that our broadband networks are going to be able to sustain all of that traffic. And the reason he did that is because Europe has a very heavy regulatory framework called utility cell regulation. There's still a lot on DSL. Yeah, exactly. And so as a result, any rational company wouldn't invest in Europe, at least not all parts of Europe. And so that's part of the reason why they had to do that. We didn't have to do that in the United States. And moreover, I used the bully pulpit and I said to all of America's broadband providers, Look, I know this is going to hit your bottom line, but do what you can to keep American consumers connected. If you can't, don't cut them off if uh, you know, they have a bill that's outstanding for, say, 30 days. Make all of your Wi-Fi hotspots available to anybody. And they stood up and they did that. And it would have been very easy, as some were suggesting in Congress, you said it should essentially nationalize these companies, FCC. That would have been a disaster. I mean, it would have been, first of all, it would have been overturned in court. And we would have wasted time. But even more than that, that's just not how the United States operates. It's not likely going to calculate. It's not going to create value for consumers at the end of the day. So I'm really proud of the work we did. And also stood up a telehealth program in the middle of it uh, that really uh, made a big difference. And, uh, you know, look, I'm not looking for plaudits. But uh, I do think that you know, overall the networks really stood the test. And I'm glad uh, they worked out that way. It amazes me you've gone from your doctor will only see you in his office and you have to waste all your time getting there to now they only want to see you on telehealth. They're like, Zoom yeah. call. And you're like, I'd like to come in. No, no, we don't have time for that. <laughs> you know? That just happened to me this morning. I was like, I'll, I'll come in tomorrow whenever you, no, nah, we'll just sit you and tell us fine. Well, here's a Zoom link. And, yeah. you know, that's, like, Can you look up. at it over there? Yeah. Uh, so, just pour some Robitussin on it for you Chris Rock fans <laughs> out there. So, yeah. um, but you bring up a good point about the disconnect between Washington, D.C. and especially uh, fundraising and, the, and Wall Street and, and how things get managed. And now you're outside the world. Talk about the changes. How do you manage the mindset? I always usually use my cell phone and I pick it up and say, most staff I talk to in the administration and um, in Congress think that paying their cell phone bill pays for the network. And that's just not the case. So, you know, and then yeah. I want to go back to um, Spectrum Auctions, but like, first let's, let's talk about that. So how has that been? It's, there's definitely a disconnect. And now, in addition to AEI, uh, I'm a partner at Searchlight Capital, a private equity firm. And so I get to see every day that uh, many in the world of finance might not understand Washington, and plenty of people in Washington have no idea about finance. And in Washington, as you might, uh, I'm sure you know, and you know, those of you in the audience might be aware, the thinking is, oh, these corporations are so rich, they're well capitalized, you know, access to capital is not a problem, uh, risks are easily surmounted, and uh, I don't think they understand that uh, for every business, I mean, ultimately, it all comes down to ROIC, return on invested capital, at least for the good companies, and you're not going to do something if you can't perceive a return to it, and so you know, the more heavier the regulatory burden is, over time, the less likely it is that business models will become executed. And I see that now in the companies we invest in. I mean, if we want to invest in states that are likely to price regulate uh, or otherwise stringently regulate broadband. I mean, it's just not worth the risk. And uh, so I think that's something that Washington would do well to remember. You can't layer regulation after regulation just because it sounds like a good idea, thinking that the corporate sector has a bottomless pit of capital and appetite for risk. Uh, conversely, I think some people in finance, not at my firm, but you know, I think at others I've heard from, just expect, oh, you know, this is the obvious thing to do. Washington should just get it done. <laughs> That's just not the way Washington works. I mean, in some th- cases, you know, the FCC didn't have the power to do what they wanted us to do. And it would take an act of Congress, and you know, Congress doesn't move with dispatch, needless to say. Or in some cases, uh, they would come to say, look, you know, we, we want the FCC to do X because X is good for our bottom line. But at the end of the day, the FCC and every other agency is going to want to do what's in the public interest. And so there would often be a disconnection there. So I think, I, you know, I'd like to think that I'm trying to bridge that gap uh, in a very, very small way. But 
it's a gap that I think needs to be surmounted because I think there's a lot for each to learn from the other. Uh, I think a lot of people in Washington would benefit from knowing exactly what private equity, what hedge funds, what VCs do because I think they just think, oh, private equity. It's, you know, the, the guy with the monopoly hat, the monocle, and, you know, just carrying the cane <laughs> and okay, just going in there with a wheelbarrow of money. Like, that's, that's not it at all. Like, I, I would love for them to sit through our investment committee meetings where we're trying to hash out every aspect of a business and understand an industry and make an investment in a good management team. It's sort of the fundamentals of good investing are actually quite consistent with the public interest, I think. And I, I would think a lot of people in Washington would do well to understand that. I love the visual, but I think in the case of our current broadband system, we have Uncle Sam behind that wheelbarrow. <laughs> and so uh, it's been fascinating if you follow how many different programs there are. It's, there's a multitude. Uh, so the uh, Department of Commerce actually in this last congressional section, session, which is still not over, has I think tripled their budget between uh, broadband and semiconductor chips that, that's coming at them. So they, they're throwing a lot of money at NTIA. Then it turns out the Department of Treasury has almost an identical program that you can apply for, but they're going through the states. And then there's also um, the, the USDA gets in this with uh, you know their, their USAC funding, and there's RDOF. There's all kinds of. I'm just, jab, just going to jabber away in acronyms for you guys. Uh, but they, but there, so, so there's lots of cash available. But then they came forward and said, okay, we'll, we'll give you money to help build out in the underserved. And the difference between unserved and underserved for the audience is unserved is where you really, like, you're out there and there's no signal. Uh, and underserved is just areas where people just, a lot of times, just don't think that having a broadband, having broadband is that important. However, they don't count cellular. So that gets interesting. I call it the Baltimore. That's how I think about it in my head. It's like, okay, it isn't that these people in these neighborhoods aren't connected. They're just connected on cellular and they're not on a wire. Um, so how does the market manage all this, all of a sudden, influx, influx of cash. And then there's that caveat that if you take it and you decide to build something out right now, and I think they're about ready to back off on this, they are also going to tax the, the government money. So there's there's lots in that question. But So how do, how do you kind of manage that forward and then tell people how to where the best places to work this? So we do have an end goal of everybody, in theory, being connected. So I think there's good and bad to all of this. The good side is that uh, the amount of money that's being allocated through these various programs you mentioned is substantial through the Agriculture Department, through the Commerce Department, through the FCC, through the Treasury and others. And so what I'm finding now in my current role uh, as an investor is has fundamentally changed the unit economics for serving some of these rural areas where otherwise you would never have a business case for building broadband. And so that's generally speaking a good thing. If you want these areas to be served, the public sector capital has to be allocated. I think part of the problem is on the other side, though, is that, number one, there are multiple different programs. And so, for example, let's say the U.S. Department of Agriculture has awarded a grant to some company to deploy in a particular area. Well, what if they haven't deployed? What if they'll never deploy? Should the Department of Commerce then come in and fund somebody else to do it? What if the FCC has already allocated money for it? And so making all these you know, kids play well in the sandbox, so to speak, is exceptionally complex. Moreover, uh, every program has different guardrails, and so I think a lot of the money could theoretically be misspent if people make the wrong decisions. And there are a lot of public choice problems here, too. You know, people will always lobby for a you know, special favor to get this dispensation or that amount of cash, and so you have to be very careful about that. And so there are, there's some good and bad to it, uh, and it's really hard to <laughs> figure out uh, how to parse all of that, uh, and also the timing of it. This money is being allocated on different time frames, and... Uh, it's, it's just really a full-time effort just to understand how the spigots are being opened and when and where and how. And it's, uh, yeah, I don't know how the people administering these programs are going to do it. And there's a, a specific interest in fiber, which they're saying is uh, future-proof, which I don't believe there's anything that's future-proof. But it feels like a superhero, uh, you know, kind of cartoon where we, you know, at least there's some people you can, you can throw, you know, faces onto, which is you've got Elon Musk coming in with Starlink, right? And and you have, uh, you know, Amazon's coming in with eventually wanting to come in with Kuiper, so they want to compete in that space. Uh, you have fixed wireless, but yet the government itself is saying, we want to put fiber in the ground, which is great. And as you're from Kansas, I'm from Nebraska. I came from an area that's actually fiber dense, but uh, the further and further you go out, there is less connectivity. And I'd rather have some connectivity if it's fixed wireless or a satellite than no connectivity. And I I think it's interesting. I don't know that I think us in the industry are having these discussions, but to the general public, if the congressmen and senators that have to make decisions on this as well as the commissioners are hearing from people saying, give me something over nothing. Right. 
It's, it's tough. Uh, so certainly when I was in office, I prized technological neutrality. I didn't want the government putting its finger on the scale in favor of any particular technology. So then the spectrum, in the uh, broadband auctions we held, we invited Starlink to participate. We invited fixed wireless companies to participate, invited cable companies to participate, where traditionally these programs had only been open to rural telephone companies that pretty much had it in uh, because they were getting a check every year and they had senators and reps behind them. Uh, so I completely understand technological neutrality. On the other hand, I guess the Commerce Department has made the decision that, look, this is such a substantial amount of money that we're just going to fund fiber over everything else. And so you know, certainly now in the private sector, we have to operate around that framework, and we have to think about, okay, is Starlink really going to be a competitor in this particular marketplace? Well, the Department of Commerce says they're going to fund somebody to build in that area, so I guess not. <laughs> uh, and so through regulatory fiat, essentially, They've made that decision. And so I still think there's going to be a place for other technologies. Uh, you fix wireless in particular, T-Mobile, as, as you might see on uh, TV or over the Internet. They're providing a real product, I and mean, this is a really compelling product that's getting hundreds of thousands of subs each quarter. And so it's a real business that they're trying to build here. Same thing with Starlink. I mean, they're launching more satellites every day. Those satellites are providing connectivity around the world, including in places like the Ukraine. Uh, so you know, that's a real technology as well. So... I think every business model uh, should have a fair chance to compete, and uh, you will see how things shake out with all of this funding coming from commerce. Do we have enough workforce to implement what we are planning on doing here? Oh, so in terms of the things that keep me up at night, uh, workforce and supply chain are two of the biggest. I mean, there are only so many people who can do this stuff, and I don't know if any of you have ever done it. I've actually strung fiber. I got on a ditch witch in rural Florida in the mud and tried to string fiber through it. I'm sure the customer who was the beneficiary of my efforts is <laughs> resenting me ever since, but it's hard, and it's labor-intensive, and if you make a mistake, you know, attaching something to the wrong spot on the utility pole, you can get sued, or the thing burns down. All the kinds of things can go wrong. It's also in some cases dangerous if you have to climb a tower or whatever. And so relatively few people want to do this kind of work, even though it's relatively well-paid and has good benefits. And so and now if you think about it, with you know, upwards of $80 billion in total going for broadband deployment, everyone in the country is going to be looking to do this work all at the same time. That's going to be a big constraint. So, uh, same thing with supply chain, too. And right, we're already yeah. seeing, uh, for the, one of the companies we've invested in Virginia, they now have a 52-week lag time between when they place an order for certain kinds of fiber and when it actually gets delivered. Uh, for certain electronics, it's 40 weeks. And so, like now, in terms of budgeting, I mean, just basic business uh, economics, it's really hard to figure out, okay, well, we have to project. This is a startup business, essentially, looking to build all this fiber. We have to project what is our business situation going to be like in nine months or a year and you know, that's, the, that's when we need to have this fiber arriving. So it's a big challenge. And if our company is doing it, I'm sure many, many others around the, comp the country are doing it too. So I want to go back to um, Spectrum. But I'm just going to give you the last question. Then I'm going to open for questions here in a second. So the Spectrum pipeline is something that you introduced while yeah. you were there. And there's, it's still, I mean, it, it brought a lot of money to the government, which you've mentioned, uh, in Spectrum auctions, which, you know, we can get into that. But there's also, it's up. The um, ability for the FCC to have spectrum auctions was expired in September 30th, I believe. Yeah. So what happens now? Uh, well, I think, I mean, it's going to be up to Congress to extend it, uh, and I think they should extend it. The FCC needs this authority. But yeah, the, the flip side of that is that the FCC actually has to exercise that authority. And one of my concerns has been, I voiced this on the record last year, is that the agency has not kept up that pace of spectrum auctions that we did. In fact, the current FCC has not held a single spectrum auction that we didn't start. And it's on track not to do any by the time the first term of this administration is done. And so same thing on the Wi-Fi side, too. We freed up 5x of the amount of spectrum for Wi-Fi than was currently held in mid-band uh, when I came into office. And there, too, they haven't freed up anything. So you know, whether Congress extends the authority or not, I'm not sure. But if they do, I think it's incumbent on the agency to get on the stick publish a calendar detailing when they're going to auction certain spectrum bands, and then do it, and then start make, doing the hard work to make those auctions happen. So the FCC needs to put a plan forward and then explain it to Congress and hopefully get the authorization back to say, we can yeah. continue doing this. You brought a lot of money in when you did it. It also opened up bands of spectrum, which was part of the interagency fight, right, to, yeah. to get people to move around. I always refer to this to people who have actually at one point had an FM radio that you had to do dialing. Is, is You had 95.9 and you had 95.7, and you're like, what happened in 95.6? And then as things went digital, what we realized is we could use the spectrum much more efficiently, and we were able 
able to use it in tighter bands. And you are part of the solution set to say, let's do that, and we can monetize that by taking some of this away from the government. The problem is government, I think they already have it, they never want to, they never want to like give it up. Um, but you, it, it was a, it was a really good part of your, you know, administration. It was very successful, and I hope that they continue it. I certainly hope so. I mean, it was stressful, I have to say. It's, uh, it's quite nerve-wracking when you get called into the White House and you show up in your kind of rumpled suit and your, your ill-fitting you know, Macy's tie, and then you see you know, the Secretary of Defense, the head of the Joint Chiefs, the head of DHS, and like all these other cabinet secretaries arrayed against you, uh, and you know the Resolute Desk is there, like the President's like, the, all these people say like you're completely off your rocker. Are they, you're telling me they're wrong? And it's like, whoa, man, that's kind of like, when I was in seventh grade civics in rural Kansas, I never anticipated like <laughs> this sort of interagency fight would ever happen. And, uh, certainly not that I would be in the middle of it, but, um, but no, I'm glad, I, I'm glad we stood our ground because ultimately that was the only way to make progress. And, uh, yeah, I think every agency head is, every one of my successors is going to have to face the same fight because these are institutional, not political debates. It's just the nature of the beast because the FCC only has jurisdiction over civilian spectrum, roughly speaking. And the Department of Commerce, as you know, has jurisdiction over what's called federal spectrum, government-owned spectrum. And so there's always going to be that clash, but it requires somebody willing at the FCC willing to break eggs to get results. Yeah, best current use. I always think about it as real estate. You know, like how do you, how, you know, you've got something that's now become a corner that doesn't doesn't make sense for what is built up around the corner. How do you best use that? So yeah, but no, I would often have these debates with them. I remember one DoD meeting. That I can't, what was the band? I don't even remember what the band was anymore. But they said the warfighter is going to be cut off from communications in theater if you free up this band. And I remember thinking for a second, I was like. Are we fighting a war in Nebraska? Like, what are you talking about? Right. There's no theater within the borders of the United States. I can imagine where the warfighter is going to be using 5G spectrum. So, what are we talking about? And just that kind of debate was just—I was always bashing my head against the wall to figure out how do I communicate to these folks? Like, I'm not your enemy. I'm trying to aid you. And that's one of the other things that I don't think people in government necessarily appreciate, regardless of who's in control. Is Civilian innovation ultimately benefits the government because the, civil, the private sector is always going to innovate faster and smarter and cheaper and better than some sort of centrally planned government agency can. And I would tell them, look, if the U.S. wins in 5G on the civilian side, that's great for the Department of Defense. That means you get all these new devices and innovations that you wouldn't probably get if you were just relying on some DoD lab. And you know, that's something I just—that's one of the things I failed at. One of the many things I failed at, I'm sure, was trying to persuade them that this is a win-win for both sides. So I lied. I have one more question. China. Since you brought I have heard of it, yes. Oh, yes. sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's a concern about, and we talked about supply chain. What what is what are your feelings about how we manage the you know equipment coming out of China? The China threat is is you know the the Huawei situation, the rip and replace. I mean, are we headed in the right direction? There's always this idea, and I you know especially here at AEI, I believe that national security should trump a lot of things. But there's sometimes where you need to just think that through. Yeah. So the China, the China threat, and now we've gone to like open radio access network called ORAN. Uh, we're, we're looking to promote that forward. Are, are we helping get our best foot forward in that space? Do you think? I think generally speaking, we are. This is one area where Democrats and Republicans historically have seen, uh, historically meaning the last five years, have been on the same page. And uh, that's one of the things I'm proudest of. Is we kind of changed course at the FCC and across the executive branch in terms of how we approach China when it came to telecom and tech. And uh, in 2018. For example, the FCC made a fundamental change and said to U.S. telecom carriers, you cannot use federal funds on equipment that is determined by the national security or the intelligence communities to be insecure. And we worked with the IC and the National Security Council and others to come up with a list. And, for example, Huawei and ZTE were on that list. And so now, as a result, U.S. companies can't buy Huawei and ZTE equipment. And uh, the current administration has continued that even further. And so I think that's a good thing. Uh, similarly, I spent a lot of time on the road from Malaysia to Israel to India, Bahrain, you name it, trying to persuade some of these other countries to view the, the Chinese threat similarly as we did. And uh, it was hard. I mean, some of these meetings, these ministers would tell us point blank, why on earth would I go with a Western supplier like Ericsson and Nokia when I have you know, Huawei and ZTE here backed by the Chinese government that are giving me a better product that is 50 to 60% cheaper? 
Like, that's a pretty tough, you know, hard right. question to answer. Um, so now I think we're starting to write the ship. Like, a lot of those countries understand that sometimes the only problem with cheap is that it can cost too much. You can essentially you know, forfeit your sovereignty, uh, as some countries have, unfortunately, by incorporating widely Huawei and ZTE gear. So... Uh, this is one area where I think you know, the current administration has done a pretty good job, uh, writ large, on, on the issue, and you know, hopefully that continues. Great. All right. So would you mind just uh, telling us your name, and then question I'll start. You're here right in front. We've got a mic runner right behind you. And even though this is not going to be on the broadcast airwaves, try to keep it clean if you don't mind. <laughs> sure. Uh, Giles, um, quick, quick, quick question, and it was your, I think, second to last comment around uh, the private sector innovation. And what I wonder is two things. Looking back, were there opportunities we missed because the FCC didn't do something or perhaps, and I know we're alive, did something wrong, uh, that you would have said, hey, if we had done this different, we could have captured an opportunity better. And then as you look ahead, um, uh, and I know you're in a, a, a PEVC now, but um, as you look ahead, like what would you say these are the future opportunities that we're not capturing fast enough or taking advantage of? Wow. So yeah, the second one's a that's a tough one. Um, as to the first, uh, I mean, there are any number of them. Um, I mean, I think a lot of the work we did in terms of deregulation should have happened a long time ago. Uh, for example, when I came into office, we still had rules on the books that required telephone companies to maintain the copper infrastructure they had in the ground at all costs, essentially. That made no sense to me. I mean, if you look at consumer demand of broadband, you know, the data consumption is going up exponentially. But you had this infrastructure that was dilapidated. And so I remember when I was a staffer back in 07, 08, thinking, this is insane. I mean, you know, cable companies don't have these ridiculous restrictions, and they're able to invest and upgrade their networks. Why shouldn't telephone companies have the same? And so it took a decade until I got the corner office to finally make that happen. And so if you think about it, that decade, Delta was huge. I mean, the telcos could have invested billions of dollars in optical fiber, which is much higher capacity and more resilient. And if they'd done that a decade ago, we'd be in a different position now. Uh, so just basic you know, things like that, that I didn't, or you know, wholesale requirements, we still had on the books uh, until my last you know, year in office, these rules that required certain companies that own infrastructure to essentially lease it out to competitors at government set rates and on government set terms. And this too made no sense to me. It's kind of the European model, which I understand, but it just it beggars belief to think that you, you would be willing to build a house if you knew the government could come in at any time and say, you know what, you've got to give your worst enemy one bedroom in the house or the entire house. And we're not going to tell you, we're going to tell you what the cost is going to be. I mean, nobody would ever build houses. And the same is true for broadband. And so just some of those basic, the basic respect for economic incentives in terms of infrastructure investment, I think, have been misaligned for a long, long time. And I think if we'd gotten that right in the early 2000s, we'd be much better off. Um, same thing on Spectrum, too. What I would love to see uh, is, a colla as I mentioned, there's bifurcated authority over Spectrum. The FCC has jurisdiction over civilian Spectrum, and the Department of Commerce has jurisdiction over government Spectrum. We're, we are unique among OECD countries in that bifurcation, and it causes all kinds of inefficiencies. I've long thought that the government should just collapse the two and give the FCC plenary authority there, and if they did, we'd be able to move a lot faster and a lot smarter than we currently are. So that's one change. Um, you know, another one is, I know this is kind of high and uh, abstract, but just greater cost-benefit analysis. I mean, I can't tell you how many FCC regulations would come across my desk when I was a staffer and then when I was a commissioner, and I would ask, have we done any analysis to figure out whether the costs of this actually outweigh the benefits? Like, one would think that the predicate for any kind of regulation should be a market failure, the correction of which results in more benefits to the American public than detriments. But, like, we never did that. And that's part of the reason why I created what's called now OEA, the Office of Economics and Analytics, to, like, make sure that economists are at the table doing that. I mean, all of these are kind of basic, I know, to most of the people in this crowd, but they're not basic at the FCC. And as I mentioned earlier on, to me, one of the most powerful forces in government is inertia. We're going to keep doing things because that's the way we've always done things. And I just, I didn't have no patience for that. And I wish my predecessors hadn't either. Oh, as of the second, though, yeah, there are a lot. I mean, look, AI, quantum, 
Um, I think that there's a lot of interesting satellite innovation that could be put at risk, uh, both because we haven't updated our regulatory framework and because there are some countries, China in particular, that are now launching uh, and not respecting certain international conventions in terms of like what orbital slots they will occupy or what spectrum they will use and whatnot. And my great fear is that we have some like massive crash in space that ends up in millennia's worth of orbital debris that makes space essentially unusable in that orbital slot for a long time. And so I think space is really promising, but there's a lot of risk there um, that needs to be sorted out. I was thinking you just came up with a new Bravo show, which is you can have your dream house, but your worst enemy has to live in it. <laughs> but oh now God. I'm thinking about space exploding, so I'm in a different spot. <laughs> um, wait, so first, first you, you had a question early on. Hi, so thanks so much for this conversation. Um, So the question I have, and I'll provide a little bit of background. So the genesis of the question came from listening to another podcast, not this one, but this is also a great one, called All In, which you can have a listen. It's a great, um, it features sort of four tech investing and operating tycoons, and they talk about a lot of different um, topics, some political, some not. And it's incredibly balanced. So for this group, you know, if you're looking for a good podcast, it's a good one. So anyway, one of the things they raised is in your wheelhouse, and it's something I've been chewing on and talking about a lot with my husband, Giles, um, which is this idea of how do we regulate and what role should the government play in regulating our social media channels? And so in the most recent podcast, they talked about um, the idea of the um, common... I'm going to mess up. Common carrier? Yeah. Common carrier idea. Um, Meaning that if you're a member of... Even if you're a member of the Ku Klux Klan, you should have a phone plan and a phone signal as a part of our government because you're a citizen and regardless of your beliefs, you know, you have a place in this platform and you should be protected by the government. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, as we think about social media regulation, as we think about folks like um, Donald Trump and other affiliates not having a place to express themselves in social media, what role do you think the FCC or FTC should play as we think about social media? Great question. And I just listened to that podcast during a bike ride recently, and I remember thinking it was such a stimulating uh, conversation. Here, I would differ a little bit from uh, David Sachs, who uh, who was making that argument. And uh, it's kind of funny. I was one year above David in law school. And I remember at the time I having conversations with him once, like, I, I'm not that interested in law. I'm like, are you crazy? Like, how can you not be interested in, you know, property law and all this stuff? And like, of course, he's gone on to much bigger and better things than I did. And so, yeah, I wish I had stayed in better touch with him over the years, to say the least. But uh, I, bet, I bet he'd return your phone call now. I, I don't know. Like, a, you know, washed up regulator, you know, kind of investor. <laughs> like, we we don't, can't really hang a shingle on that. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's that's my yeah. That's my argument. But it was the same thing. Uh, one in my college dorm, I was in the same dorm as uh, this guy Craig. We used to have lunch together all the time. And I remember he went off to Silicon Valley to do a master's in computer science, and he dropped out. I'm like, oh, huge mistake. He was literally the first employee at Google, and he's like been retired now for decades. Like, I never tell my mom any of this stuff because right. she's like, see, it could have been you, but no, you had to go do this law school thing and you know, like, become a government agency. Right. Exactly. I could have been retired and like yeah, bought her a place and yeah, all that kind of stuff. But uh, uh, sorry, uh, digressions are always a risk with me. But oh, so, yeah, two thirty. So, there, so the concern I have, I'm not a big fan of common carrier regulation, generally speaking. And the basic reason is that common carrier regulation, in my view, is appropriate only when there is a market failure and or the industry is a natural monopoly. And so the only alternative is to essentially treat that company as if it were the AT&T of 100 years ago, where like there's only going to be one telephone network, you're only going to have one power line, there's only going to be one water company. When it comes to social media, I mean, things change pretty quickly. I mean, even now, it's kind of funny to me that the FTC has Facebook in its you know, squarely in its sights of, like, prohibiting them from doing anything in the social media space because, like, TikTok is eating their lunch, right? It's like if I'm at Meta, I'm, like, much more worried about you know, TikTok than I am anything else. And so, you know, social media is much more competitive, number one. Number two, I'm not convinced that either the FCC or the FTC has the legal authority to impose common carrier regulation, which I know is kind of an arcane thing. Uh, you know, look at the law, but it's like, look, less until Congress updates the law, at least at the FCC, the FCC only has jurisdiction, common carrier jurisdiction over uh, telecom companies, which this is not. This is higher up in the stack. And so that's one of the concerns I'd have about common carrier regulation. I also think it could also cause some unintended consequences. I mean, investment decisions, you know, depend a lot on the regulatory treatment of things. And I wouldn't want to 
have the government art, you know, artificially try to channel investment into different areas uh, by imposing common carrier regulation on social media companies. That said, I do have a lot of skepticism about these companies, and I made that clear five years ago, actually five years ago next month now that I think about it, uh, when I introduced the net neutrality decision, and I made the argument back then that those who are concerned about an open internet should really be looking at the companies that do in fact decide what people say and what they hear online. That's not Verizon, and that's not Comcast, and that's not all these other telecom providers. It's Twitter, and it's Facebook. And these are the companies, and this was in 2017, well before it was cool. You know, fast forward in October of 2020 when Twitter unilaterally decides to suspend the Twitter account of the newspaper Alexander Hamilton founded because it publishes a report that is unhelpful to the challenger to the incumbent president. A decision which now the current founder of CEO said, yeah, it's totally unfounded, we shouldn't have done that. I mean, it's just outrageous. Or even now, the last week, as you might have seen, PayPal is now deciding, well, it, it claims it has reversed its decision, but the core policy is still in place, that it can actually fine you, take $2,500 of your money away from you if it decides that what you are doing is an example of misinformation or like discriminatory treatment. I mean, pardon my French, like who the hell is PayPal to make that decision? Right? And so I have very little sympathy for these companies, which were banging the drum in favor of net neutrality, you know, forcing network operators to abide by these rules because they were concerned that network operators would censor content, who are now turning around doing the exact same thing. And so for me, at least, I think the primary avenue for reform would be sort of closer interpretation of what exactly Section 230 means. And at the end of my time, you know, the president had issued an executive order essentially asking the FCC to look into this, and we ran out of time, so we couldn't do it. But, you know, once I actually started to read Section 230, Section C1 and C2 in particular, it, it seems like there, the current court system has overbroadly um, over construed a lot of those terms. And so what I would hope is that some court or the FCC or FTC or Congress would take a look at that and you know, essentially require social media companies to play by the same rules that everybody else in the telecom stack has to play by. And so concurrently, that would mean, theoretically, as one of the commissioners at the FCC now believes, if you're going to impose you know, Title II net neutrality on telecom providers, then you better impose common carrier regulation on Internet companies, too. Yeah, there's no more, under the well-established precedent of goose versus gander, you can't impose one set of rules on your competitors and not abide by those rules yourself. So... Anyway, another long-winded answer, for which I apologize, but that's kind of where my head is at the moment. Great. <laughs> Back to the room. Did you have a question? Thanks. Uh, my name is Reed. I'll just follow up on Chelsea's question just a little bit for more nuance. You mentioned the stack, and so one might argue that companies in the stack that are closer to the end user experience, what they interface with, companies that whose products host, so Twitter, and then companies whose products host those products, say it's the App Store or on Apple or Google Play, and then the, say, AWS or Azure and the security companies that provide infrastructure no one's aware of that, that support those companies, you reference PayPal. There are, there's nuance in the stack there between the Verizons, oh, like sure. laying pipe, and then like the Twitters or the TikToks or whatever teenagers are going to be into six or nine months from now. Is there any nuance to how you treat these companies and their obligations under 230 as they start to look a little bit more like utility, like classic utilities, yeah. less kind of... You know the, the app of the the app of the week, the app of the year. It's a good question, but I th to me at least, the decisive factor is from the consumer perspective. What is the end result? I mean, from a consumer perspective, I don't think they much care whether it's you know, YouTube you know, censoring what they can say, or PayPal taking their money, or AWS refusing to host their website, or Verizon preventing them from sending an email. I mean, to them, the question is like, am I free to do what I want on the internet or not? And if the answer is no then, I mean, to me, at least, there should be regulatory parity into how we treat everybody in the stack. And so, for example, I'll give you one. So during the net neutrality debate, the CEO of Cloudflare, which I'm sure you know, do all kinds of you know, DNS and all this other service, the CEO of Cloudflare said that he would look into cutting off my Internet access as a penalty for my going down the road of uh, you know, removing net neutrality regulations. And so you know, the next year, he came into my office, and I told him, 
I'm pretty tempted to refer you to the FTC uh, for violating uh, you know, the Unfair Deceptive Trade Practices Act and whatnot. And he's completely shocked. And it's like, look, you're the one sitting here saying that we should have full, hardcore net neutrality regulations on network operators because you say they would have the power to censor content. But you're perfectly willing to cut off my, my personal Internet access because you disagreed with me on a policy decision. How is that any different? Why shouldn't Cloudflare be traded the same as anybody else? And so... He didn't really have a good answer to that, as far as I could tell, and you know, for good reason, because again, it's a, the basic you know goose versus gander argument. And so, I mean, I guess to, to your question, maybe the decisive factor should be uh, instead of where they sit in the stack, whether or not they have market power. So, I mean, if they have market power, then as you said, they do smack more of like a you know, highly regulated utility, like a water company, as opposed to say a social media company that has to compete with a bunch of other social media companies. So. You know, maybe market power should be the you know, the decisive factor here. And just a aside, we do have a whole content program that we're running here at AI, so kind of keep an eye out for that um, over here. How how does the U.S. government and the executive branch and all of the uh, uh, agencies grow more people like you? Like, how do you? How <laughs> uh, you say that's all the former FCC chair? I, I, I don't. I don't. Because I'm not, I'm not a fan of the regulator in in general. But like, how? That's a good. Uh, you're very kind to say that. You no, know, often I felt like uh, you know, that annoying kid in, when you were in college who ran for student government on a platform of getting rid of student government. It's like <laughs> I remember thinking one day, like when I was getting all these arrows, like, oh my god, that's me. Like, I'm sorry, like how did this happen? Like, you know, um, I, I don't know, to be honest. I mean, I think part of it is just uh, the, the selection process really makes a difference. I mean, for example, when I was picked as a commissioner. Uh, I was, it, that was on the recommendation of Senator McConnell. And when I interviewed with him and his team, uh, they asked, you know, look, what kind of commissioner do you want to be? And I told I laid it all on the line. I goes, look, you know, I'm just by nature, I'm not a color inside the lines kind of guy. There's a lot of regulatory detritus out there that I've not been able to stand as a, as a staffer and just as a citizen for a long time. And if I ever had a pen, I'd want to get rid of a lot of it. And I'm willing to, like I said earlier, I'm willing to spend every bit of capital to get it. And that's exactly what they were looking for. And I'd like to think that in any administration, you know, they would want to pick people like that, people of action. And uh, so one of the things I did with my team was to say, uh, look, just let's assume that we started from scratch. There were no regulations at all. How, how, what, what rules would you write for the road? And whatever the delta is between where we are now and whatever that is you came up with, to the maximum extent of our legal authority, let's get there. And you know whatever it is, like I'll take the heat for doing it. Like the, the I mentioned the GPS decision we made. Our engineers and legal team sat down with me in December of 19, and uh, I was asking them, look, if we free up the spectrum for 5G, you know, is it the right thing to do? Like, is there a chance of interference with uh, military GPS? And they were like, no, but nonetheless, we recommend you not do this because the DoD is going to make your life hell in 2020. And you know, they sure did, no doubt about it. It was a miserable 2020 in some ways. But I'm, I told them, like, I, the question is always, what is the right thing to do? I mean, my greatest fear going into government was when I left, not being able to say I did everything I thought was right and you just as fast as I possibly could. I mean, I used to have this piece of paper, which I'm sure my team would roll their eyes at whenever they saw it. But whenever I powered up my computer... I would look at it, and it was a quote from Winston Churchill, which he wrote in the 1920s. And the quote abridged says, uh, You hear this, young men and women, and proclaim it far and wide. Uh, you are needed now more than ever before. Take up the mantle of change, for now is your time. And I was keenly aware that look, when I got the job in January 17, at the most I'd have it for four years. That's not a long time. You have a very limited time to make a mark. And so to all my successor, to anybody else who asks me for advice, I always tell them, like, don't take the job just to mark time. I mean, nobody remembers the people who marked time, right? It's just you get the nice credential, you know, you get a you know, blog entry or whatever in Wikipedia. But, like, that's not what delivers value. And so you've really got to, if you're going to go into public service, like, make it meaningful. And I know there are a few people like that out there, I hope, still kicking around. I know it seems counterintuitive, but a lot of times some of the best people that end up in these positions, and I'm thinking of uh, Commissioner Noah Phillips at the Federal Trade Commission, who's amazing. And when he writes a dissent, you should, you know, you should read it. It's good. Uh, but he, he goes, he knows the law. He was there. He did a lot of this work, and he knows where the 
kind of the lines of bullshit are. Um, and it seems like oh, you're always picking insiders when you do that, but the insiders a lot of times know where all the fault lines are. And um, but I think you know, both of you and Noah come from an idea of uh, you know not you know libertarian has like you know versions of it. You, you knew that you less government was in a lot of times the better way to go, but you weren't completely like you shouldn't not have regulation. Like regulation yeah. has its place, but it shouldn't be like the government gets to decide everything. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And uh, oh, the other thing I'll mention is, by the way, I you know, also paired this with like a deep sense of the need to motivate the organization to enact my agenda. I mean, I'm one person. My office was maybe 15 people. The SEC overall is 1,500 people. Nothing is going to happen if they're opposed to your agenda. And so I spent a lot of time making sure that they knew that we are all members of the team. So like every retirement function, every affinity group, every time we had a reti- um, an FCC meeting, I would recognize people by name who did a good job. Like all that stuff accumulated. So even now, like when I see people, like wow, we actually really, you know, even though we're Democrats, we really like what you did, and we like we love working for you and working really, really hard because we felt like we were part of something with a common purpose. And I think it's one of the mistakes some Republicans make when they get these jobs is to think that you know the career staff is just the enemy just run over them as much as you can and just get your stuff done like to me i it's harder to do it my way but ultimately we got a lot more results across the board because i really engaged the staff as a partner and i'm really really proud of that uh, to this day i mean i you know i personally went with them to puerto rico after hurricane maria and we were surveying stuff and doing things and just that stuff really gets noticed by the staff and uh like I said, I'm sort of proud of like marrying this you know, vision for the agency with a commitment to organizational behavior. Back here. So, so not to sound like a first-year law student, but I think the two institutions of government that had more profound effects on everyday American lives has been the courts and administrative law agencies. Yeah. <laughs> so I say this as a, as a former space uh, executive and, a, and an active venture capital investor. You know, the the un the yo-yoing of net neutrality that causes havoc yeah. as a as in the business environment. You know, what can you know? I think to follow up on Mark's question, why is it, for example, a leader like you the exception? But most often the time, we get administrative agencies kind of an insider who's never spent a an, uh, a day in the private sector making rules that have monumental effects on the way investors or business people have to operate in that. What, like, from a broader sense, from a system level sense, like, what can administrative law agency leaders like yourself do more to reform the system so it's more consistent and it's more responsive to the needs of those outside of government? So I think one of the things that uh, one of the things that Washington could do is force Congress to actually legislate on these questions. I think a lot of time uh, times uh, one of the problems for administrative agencies is they're always trying to shoehorn whatever the current thing is into these regulatory or statutory frameworks that were established in some cases decades ago. And, you know, the FCC has certainly done that, the FTC, all these alphabet soup agencies do it. And part of the reason is that Congress just doesn't legislate all that often on some of the core questions. For example, the most recent Internet legislation, comprehensive Internet legislation Congress passed, was 1996. And we're talking the era of Alta Vista and, you know, modems that make that sound when you log on and whatnot. And that's a long time ago. And so when it came to net neutrality, for example, I urged Congress back in 2014, whatever the rules you want are for net neutrality, just legislate them, put them on the page, and we can move on to something else instead of having this yo-yo where Republican and Democratic administrations change the rules. And they still haven't done that. The legislation on net neutrality is actually quite simple. No blocking of lawful content, no throttling of lawful content. Uh, you know, any competitive pay prioritization and transparency in terms of network management. And all. I just described in like 15 seconds legislation that should pass like 99 to 1. You know, Bernie Sanders is always the one, right? So it's always going to be a one. But like, nonetheless, that should be overwhelmingly bipartisan legislation. It's never going to be proposed, much less passed, because there's just no interest in any kind of solution. So that's why the FCC or other agencies, too, on other questions, are kind of forced to do something. 
and try to figure it out. And the other thing I think is really significant is the Supreme Court decision in West Virginia versus EPA, which you, uh, if you haven't read it, I would certainly recommend you read it because, to me at least, it is a fundamentally important decision. Uh, it's, it's done in the case of the administrative state, what the Supreme Court has done in other areas of the law, which is to say that fundamental questions have to be decided by the people's elected representatives. That should be what every student learns in civics when they're in grade school. That's not the way things are done now. I mean, all too often, well beyond this telecom sector, I mean, things like healthcare and energy, any given administration will just make it up. <laughs> this is a good idea. So we're by executive order or you know, through some cabinet department, we're going to do it, regardless of whether or not we have the authority to do it. And I think the Supreme Court has finally said, yeah, no, <laughs> there has to actually be a law passed by elected representatives that specifies what the executive branch or an independent agency is allowed to do. And if you take that seriously, as I do, it would seem to follow that you know, now Congress needs to take the reins back and start legislating. You know, what should be the rules on blockchain and crypto, for example? Like, I don't want the SEC just making it up because of the temporary majority they might have right now. What should be the rules on AI? Like, I don't want some hodgepodge of agencies making it up because Congress hasn't legislated. Like, I want Congress to put on the page the basic principles for all of these areas. I mean, that's what we elected them for, right? To make the rules. Like, we don't make the rule, the administrative state doesn't make the rules, they execute the rules. And so, just that fundamental fact of government has been lost, I think, over the last 20 years when it comes to technology and other sectors. And I would hope that they would start to return to that fundamental understanding. Do you still have a question over here? Okay. All right, no, we got right here. This will be the last one. Okay. Oh, gosh. That's for last. Yeah. Um, the pressure's on, my friend. <laughs> And I appreciate that last comment as a student of Judge Lawrence Silverman. Oh, uh, yes. Late, late judge. The late judge, uh, yeah. Hardest class I ever took in law school. <laughs> um, question is totally unrelated. Um, and, I, and, I, and maybe it's mooted by events that happen after. But I was involved in some matters for radio companies. And they were really fundamentally thinking of, of changing their entire business model based on this reverse spectrum auction. Mm. And these really wild valuations about how much they were worth, and it got the clients thinking about, you know, do we sell, do we not sell? And there was some ancillary litigation involved with, you know, deals that were made on the valuations. None of them panned out. And again, I, I, I kind of lost track of what happened after, but earlier you mentioned um, a lot of the proceeds of these reverse spectrum auctions that benefited the, the, the U.S. public and taxpayer. Um, it, it, was that different with the, the radio spectrum auctions from the ones you're talking about? Or did something happen after? But the ones that I remember, they kind of didn't pan out. And they yeah. had to run them again. And it, it, it was far below the, the, the projections. So I wonder if you could speak to that. Yeah, so uh, yeah, this is kind of arcane. But the bedrock rule for any FCC spectrum auction is that the proceeds of that auction, by law, have to be deposited in the U.S. Treasury. Um, and we don't keep it. We deliver it directly to the Treasury. Now, in some cases, Congress makes exception to that. And so the auction you're talking about, one of the things Congress did was pass a law back in 2012, I believe it was, uh, saying that, okay, you have to hold this, what's called an incentive auction, where you will give certain broadcasters the right to participate in the auction, relinquish or share the spectrum, and in exchange for that, they will get to keep some part of the proceeds. And that's part of the reason why investors and the broadcasters were interested in you know, figuring out, okay, well, how much would our spectrum be worth? Is it worth it to us to participate in this auction? Because Congress passed a specific law for that purpose. Uh, and one of the problems is that incentive auction law passed in 2012 was a one-time only deal. Congress has never passed anything like it again. I wish they would. That would be great. But going back to my earlier uh, comment, you know, we can't just, we can't decide on our own, or the, the FCC can't decide on its own you know, to allocate that spectrum to broadcasters. So I've heard from a number of broadcasters that they'd be interested in participating because they saw the proceeds that some broadcasters got. Uh, they got made a pretty good uh, you know, profit on it, but the, unless Congress acts, nothing unfortunately can happen. <coughs> By the way, a shout-out to Judge Silverman. I, I loved the judge. My chief of staff clerked for him as well. And uh, we cited his opinions many times in my case, uh, in my statements, uh, including my favorite, the chutzpah doctrine, which he came up with, which whenever someone would come to court with a really ridiculous argument, you know, like the orphan who killed his parents, and then or the, the person who killed his parents came to you know, plead the mercy of the court as an orphan, you know, he invented what's called the chutzpah doctrine. So I cited it very often because a lot of times in telecom, what you'll find is someone coming to the FCC saying, I really need you to give me dispensation X. 
even though I've got unclean hands. And so we would cite it as kind of a nice shorthand for saying, you know, look, you know, yeah, you, you can't do that at the FCC just as you can't do it in Judge Silverman's court. And even beyond that, I mean, just for those of you who don't know, I mean, just one of the great American stories. I have an incredible career in the law, practiced law in Honolulu, Ambassador Yugoslavia, Deputy Attorney General, uh, you know, was just at the Labor Department. And then decades as a very distinguished D.C. Circuit judge. And uh, to me, I think, to one of your, your question, uh, how do you come up with people like me? I, I was following the poll star of people like him and Justice Scalia and others who just uh, said, you know, like, I know my views are going to be unpopular in some quarters, but you know, th- th- them's the breaks. So I'm doing what I think is right and leaving a mark. And anyway, I very much remember him with fondness. Well, thank you very much for being with us tonight. Oh, my gosh. Thank yeah, you all for supporting AI. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane. 